This episode's guest is Nick Winkleman. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Nick was formerly the director of education for Exos and oversaw the speed and assessment components of their combine development program. Nick is an internationally recognized speaker and has his PhD with a focus on motor learning and sprinting. Nick has just recently released his book, The Language of Coaching, where he goes into detail on the learnings and methods on the impact that communication has on an athlete's ability to learn and perform movements. On this episode, I asked Nick, how was he getting through COVID-19 at the time that we recorded this podcast? I then asked Nick about the genesis of his book, The Language of Coaching. I asked Nick, how did he get such a passion to study motor learning and skill acquisition? We discussed internal and external cues and when to use either. And finally, I asked Nick about the layout of his book and what readers can expect when they get their hands on it. Guys, this was an outstanding conversation with Nick and I hope you really enjoy it. Nick, thank you so much for making time. I know you're doing a ton of podcasts lately, so I really do appreciate it. How are you doing? Robbie, I am fantastic. How are you? As I said before we hopped on, phenomenal. Um, I think, you know, as we're coming to the back end now of COVID, I, I think, you know, as a, a society and as a world population, I think we're kind of getting through this now and getting towards hopefully the tail end of it. So uh, how are things been with you over the last two months? How has it affected you and your um, your business and profession with the IRFU? Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, across you know, the world and, and rugby is no different. It's required massive physical and psychological and organizational pivoting. And what, you know, say what we will about, about the difficult times that we're in. For me, it's been amazing to see our staff and the people that I get to work with on a daily basis adapt to this so quickly with such a positive mindset. And I think we've all been talking about, at least we have with Irish Rugby, what are the things that we have learned uh, in this time out of necessity that more than likely we wouldn't have sampled uh, otherwise that we want to bring forward. And I just think that the, the quality of the communication, say what we will about the quantity at times, but most certainly the quality of the communication and realizing you know, that technology can really be an advocate to have conversations that ideally will happen face-to-face, but if not, it's far better to have them at the right frequency, even if digitally. So we've learned so many things that we believe will positively benefit our, our practice moving forward. But this is a time where values, beliefs, and behaviors are tested, and I'm just so proud of our team. Amen to that. So, Nick, you finally released your first book. Congratulations. Um, you know, as someone who, personally myself, I haven't written a book, but I've written a lot of essays, written a lot of blog posts. So I, I have some appreciation what goes into the writing process. So kudos to you for finally getting the book out. I, I can only begin to imagine the, the total work that went into the book and the investment of your time, energy, money, and, you know, time away from loved ones and whatnot and putting your soul into the project. So let's catch up the listeners of this podcast with the book, its genesis. Um, and just before you get into that, I would love for you like to, to, to really give us the birth of this book, you know. So I've listened to a couple of your latest podcasts, Lee Taft, the one you know with Eric Cressy, the Strength Coach podcast, you know, and you brought all three guys right back to your time at Oregon State. 
Um, you know, even even spoke on the podcast with Lee about Rudy, who was, you know, a volunteer sort of strength coach at your high school. And mm-hmm. then at Oregon State, you spoke about JC. And then you met Guido. And then obviously you went on to, to AP, Exos AP at the time. So, you know, the floor is yours now. Give us the whole genesis. Because I really think the background story to, to where you are now and the release of the book that just came out in April is, um, is one that uh, really sets the context for our conversation. Robbie, you have way too much time on your hands. If you're able to listen to that many podcasts and then demonstrate, obviously, you know, the entire, the entire mapping, but that's what makes you great, my man. So let me, uh, well, you've nailed, the reality is you've, you've nailed the individuals and the milestones along the way. So I'll try to be brief because this one can get long winded. Uh, the first, let's call it the first spark, as you rightly noted, came from high school, strength coach named Rudy. Worked at Costco during the day and then would come open the gym up at clockwork uh, at 2.30 p.m., I recall. And he was there every single day, Monday through Friday, at all the games, at all the sporting events, helping individuals uh, develop themselves. And it was early on in working with him that while most certainly he developed us physically, uh, in retrospect, I came to really appreciate that he was the one that first taught me the value and the importance of developing the person inside of the player. And, you know, his programs were the same, you know, on Monday and Thursday and Tuesday and Friday, but at that age, you do just about anything, you're going to get better. But it was really the lessons that he taught us as individuals on how to behave, how to conduct ourselves and what it means to be a great person in life and add value to others and be a servant, especially if you want to be a strength coach. And so Rudy, set the spark that, that for me, I wanted to get into the person business and, and helping people achieve uh, ultimately the goals that at, at times they felt were unachievable. And that's why a coach is needed. From there, fast forward, yep, I was at Oregon State University. And one of my fraternity brothers just told me about this in-house personal training course that they were running at the local rec center. And so I went down there, got on the personal training course, you know, kind of studying that alongside my degree, and I met two mentors. Uh, JC was uh, another student, senior to me, and a personal trainer. He was the one teaching the course. And then his mentor, funny enough, who also became mine, uh, Guido Van Rysigam, who's now carved a very nice niche for himself in, in the world of rehabilitation and performance. And so working with these two individuals, JC notably, I started to come to appreciate the value of communication and cueing. And the way it went out is I, I shadowed this guy for the better part of three years. And even once I became a certified personal trainer in my own right, I continued to shadow his sessions just because one, I saw him as a mentor, but I was enamored with how he would coach and communicate. And it took me probably a good year to realize it. But one day I finally, so to speak, saw the matrix, the ones and zeros appeared. And I realized that, man, this guy was doing bench press on Mondays like everybody else, doing bicep curls, tricep extensions, squats, you know, gun show, all the good stuff. So it wasn't so much his program that differentiated him and the success his clients were having, but rather it was how he interacted with them. So not the what, but the how. And I finally realized that it was his cueing. This, this person would just speak with such precision and purpose. You know, I think I even at one point I called him the, the king of cues. 
And I remember the day very clearly. I ran into Tagito's office, and he's a, a athletic trainer, so sports med type individual rehabilitation primarily. And I said, "Listen, I finally realized why JC is so good at what he does." He's like, "Why?" It's like because his cueing, his communication. This is so important. I'm going to write a book one day called "The Form Within," and and I don't know why it dawned on me to manifest my observation into me writing a book, right? I mean, Robbie, if anyone should have been written the book, it should have been the guy who was doing the cueing. But funny enough, when you talk to him and said, why are you so good at what you do? He wouldn't say cueing and communication. He would say it was his knowledge of programming, his knowledge of anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics. So even to him, his strength was invisible. And communication to all of us, if we think about it, it's like electricity. It is invisible. We know when it's working and when it's not, but the actual craft of communication oftentimes operates under the radar, unscrutinized. And so for me, that's why I use the analogy of seeing the matrix. I observed something for a moment that I realized was critical. And so at the time, I had nothing to do with that. You know, I had nowhere to put that information. So it was a seed that just sat in the back of my mind. And then you fast forward, you know, gosh, probably seven or eight years later, it's 2009, and I'm taking over the NFL Combine Development Program uh, at Exos from some amazing predecessors, Luke Richardson, Daryletto, Ken Croner, Joe Gomes, and the like, all individuals who went on to be strength coaches in the NFL. You know, one went on to win a Super Bowl with the Denver Broncos. So I was taking this program over, the, the what, the X's and O's, from highly established coaches to this day, people that I look up to and respect. And so as I took the program over, I'm coaching it, as I say in the book, to the dotted I and the cross T, military precision on the timing, surgical accuracy with the cues. I'm talking before, during, and after. And in my mind, I'm flying through this program with my 30-some, you know, recently graduated, in most cases, American football players who are trying to go to, to the NFL via the NFL Combine. But something started to happen about halfway through that first year running the program. And it was almost analogous to the, the spark of clarity I had when watching J.C. Coach so many years prior. And it was a Monday morning. I remember it clearly. I'm standing to, to the left side of a four-lane track, and I have my players going through a dynamic linear speed warm-up before we get into our acceleration work. And it's, a, it's kind of a brisk January morning, beautiful blue sky out in Phoenix, Arizona. And all of a sudden, it was like I had this out-of-body experience where I was able to, to observe myself in a bird's eye view. And what I saw is someone who was coaching, cueing before, during, after the movement. I was talking constantly. And to the intern standing next to me, they might be taking down copious notes of all the varied cues and phrases I was using. Oh, that's a great one. I got to use that. Oh, that's perfect. But I realized that I was coaching as a one-way street. It was output only. In my mind's eye, I was so focused on the program and delivering and facilitating the program, I forgot to look up and see the person. 
For if I had looked up to see the person, I would have realized that my cues were ricocheting into the ether and they most certainly were not impacting the people in front of me. You know, no one was changing their movement. I wasn't directing any of my cues at anyone in particular. And I simply was not using language with precision or purpose. Now, don't get me wrong, Robbie. There is always a time to be the loudspeaker where you're facilitating a session, you're adding energy. And I'm not talking about that. What I inevitably realized is that's how I was coaching all the time, even when it was one-on-one. You know, I was given a lot of information before. I was probably spurting off reminders, push, 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 drive, 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 talk, 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 during and after. So it was just this global observation that I was a, this collector of all this information, but I was not a curator of it. I was not precise in how I was using it and placing it within the learning journey, so to speak, of my athletes. And so I had this observation, but again, like the one in college, I didn't necessarily know what to do with it, but the angst was strong. And I knew after this NFL combine development period, I had to start to study how I, as a coach, could improve beyond the X's and O's of what I did, i.e. program design. So then fast forward a month later, we're in Indianapolis. We're 200 meters away from Lucas Oil Stadium, where the players go in and run their 40s and do their vertical jump and all the other uh, movements that we, we see on NFL Network, at least when it's broadcast stateside. And so we're 200 meters away. We're in the Omni Hotel. We're in the downstairs, beautiful ballroom that we rent out or at least when I worked there, we rented out year on year to support these players in their, in their week, so to speak, interview, trying to prepare for the combine to inevitably optimize their draft status. And I'm sitting there watching now my guys run on TV because we're not NFL staff, we're not allowed in the stadium. And frankly, I wouldn't want to be there. You know, it's not my show, it's the player's show. And so as I'm watching my guys run on the television live, I have my computer next to me with our times, pre, during, and post times, as well as our video from when these, these guys were running in Phoenix. So in my mind, Robbie, I knew exactly what should happen, at least what I wanted to have happen. And because this program that I was running had been tested for so many years, we had our taper right, guys were feeling right, the subjective feeling of the players was, I'm ready to go. So, so I knew they should be ready to put on a show, so to speak. But when I started to watch them perform, I was internally appalled, okay? So the, the players who had learned to get long out of their three-point stance, who had once been hunched in the back, who now were able to get long, extended, big push to optimize their first step, were back to being hunched over. I literally, his name's Golden Tate. He almost, you can go watch his 40-yard his dash on YouTube. He almost slips out of his stance. He stumbles out. He takes so many steps. Now, he still runs a good time, but not using the quality of movement that we had trained him to use. That not only would help the 40, but him moving in space generally. Other players who we had stopped from, let's say, reaching and casting forward during maximal velocity were back to reaching and casting forward. Players who had been getting big frontside mechanics were now back to the temper tantrum, quick leg action. I'm like, what is going on here? And so it's like they had improved from a time perspective, albeit not all of them. Some of them had actually run significantly faster when they were with me in Phoenix. But for almost all of them, there seemed to be some kind of a regression 
in the quality of movement, in the coordination that for me most certainly related to a possible improvement in performance. And I think as coaches in general, we've all had that experience where someone performs well when they're with us, when we're the one doing the cueing and the reminding, but then they come back a week later and we see that regression and we have to get into those reminders, cues and prompts again, or the quote unquote practice player that seems to do really well during the week, but can't bring it to bear when they're by themselves and competing, whether in a team sport or in an individual sport. And so what I was observing was a failure to transfer, at least failure to have complete transfer. What had transferred Robbie, and this is an important fact in the way I think about developing movers, is the physical qualities. I mean, these guys have done so many reps of sprinting and so much lifting that most certainly their force characteristics and their velocity characteristics came through. That's why they ran faster. And so we had improved the car. We had upgraded the engine. But the driver, the one controlling the car, the quality of the movement that most certainly directly impacts performance insofar as time is concerned, and definitely in team sports, risk of injury, right? That had been lost as if it was, had it been a piece of luggage, Robbie, they lost the luggage on their way from Phoenix to Indianapolis. And this absolutely ate at me because we apparently had left something on the table. And so that locked into my late January moment of clarity, locked into the seedling of observation with JC back at Oregon State said, okay, I know what I have to do. I need to study how to coach. I am a variable. I impact them. If it was just enough to give them a program, if it was just enough to make them bigger, faster, stronger, why would we need coaches? We still have coaches. And thus, our job is to program for the car, but to coach for the driver. And I feel I had failed, so to speak, the driver's test in how I was coaching them. And for me, I committed fully to studying skill acquisition, motor learning, communication. And as I went down the rabbit hole, and still to this day, I'm going deeper down that rabbit hole, I recognize that, that I, as a coach, I am a variable. And just like I can improve my programming, I can improve my coaching. And I do that through the way I design sessions and the way I communicate that design through my language, cues, instruction, and feedback. And thus, for me, many things impact learning. But communication was the area, the, the invisible edge, so to speak, that I felt had the greatest return on investment for myself. And inevitably, that return was so large, Robbie, for me and the athletes that I supported, that because of my connection to coach education, I said, I have got to give this information a platform. I've got to dig it out of the trenches of the motor learning textbooks and the motor learning research and associated. And I have to take these six to eight syllable words and make them one to four syllable words. And I've got to tell the story of how we coach because it's an idea that has been born, but it's an idea that has not been shared with the world in the way that I believe it should have been. And so I wrote the book that I wish I had had when that seedling hit my mind back working with JC. So after that combine, Nick, like what happened? So as in you, you, you've identified, right, the athletes I'm coaching, I'm doing them a disservice because again, as you alluded to, you know, you were essentially 
just coaching the program but not the athlete in front of you so once you had put your finger on the the problem what were the next steps then so when you came back from that combine like did you sit down did you take out a notepad did you say right this is what i want to do this is where i want to go because just in my own mind like I don't think myself, if I was in that position, I would have went, ah, motor learning, that's where I need to go. I, I, I just would have known something was wrong because obviously from observing the athletes not executing how they had done pre-combine um, as they had done in Arizona with you at the time. But I probably myself personally wouldn't have had the recognition at that time to be like, it's definitely motor learning, it's queuing, that's where I need to go. I just would have known there might have been a problem. So for you, how did you know or how did you come to cueing and motor skill acquisition and motor learning as the areas you needed to go to after that combine? So really, really nuanced and important question. So the first thing is you got to go back to my experience with JC. I had already had that seedling around language and communication uh, sewn into my mind. And so I knew that, okay, that is an area that I had not looked at yet. And so I remember even early on jumping on Google Scholar and looking up like the science of queuing mm. or queuing science. And, and right, I found nothing. And to this day, you really won't find a whole lot, to be honest, because within the world of motor learning, what we conventionally would call queuing or for the curious individual, the science of queuing is actually the science of attentional focus, right? I know that as a phrase doesn't necessarily come off the tongue lightly and most certainly is not standard coach speak. And so to begin with, trying to identify where I could learn about cueing felt like a dead end uh, until I could find the right vocabulary. So the seed was there and that helped me in part know that, okay, something about this is important. The, the second thing was this realization and, you know, I remember at the time reading some wooden. So, you know, you haven't taught until they've learned. So I'm like, okay, teaching, learning. And then it kind of came together like this in my mind, you know, during or shortly after that first combine. Well, I am a teacher. They are a student. Okay. Coach, athlete, coupling, teacher, student, same difference. Well, what's the subject matter? You know, what am I actually teaching? Well, the subject matter is movement. Okay, so what's the textbook for teaching movement? And once you ask yourself that question, assuming you've had some exposure to the major domains of exercise science, you realize, oh yeah, I got that one textbook by Schmidt or, or McGill called Motor Learning or Motor Control and Learning. And so literally, because I was a nerd like that, I went to my garage and I dusted off quite literally the Richard McGill textbook, you know, motor skill learning or motor control, and motor skill learning, some basic name like that. And I'll never forget, I, I read it cover to cover. And at the time, I was not an avid reader until I got into the field of exercise science. But even within the field of exercise science, I had selected interests. I always liked biomechanics and anatomy more than I did exercise physiology. But then once I started to sink my teeth into this, I did not need coffee. Just the words and the ideas and the phrases and the concepts were just powering my mind. And now if I look at the textbook, it's hilarious. The whole thing is yellow because there was very few concepts in there that I didn't see as being valuable. And so it had started on a trip to Hawaii with my, my wife, my newborn at the time, 
and her family. And I was just reading this thing, you know, ferociously and got through the whole thing. And what that did is said, okay, we have a couple core principles on learning, attention and memory. So attention is what we need to let something into the brain. And then memory is what we need to hold on to it. So that's pretty important for both cognitive and physical skills. But then in terms of how to get the right stuff in the brain to make it sticky, there's two ways to do that. Ultimately, there's nonverbal, the physical stuff, the drills, the constraints, the programming. And as I read a lot of that, I was a quick learn with it because I'm already used to designing drills and programming. And this just helped me tweak and understand how to get the right environment to drive learning forward. But the stuff that I said, yes, there it is. That's what I've been searching for. Mm. X marks the spot were the chapters on instruction, feedback, cueing, and communication. And as I'm going through this, I just feel absolutely appalled <laughs> that I had not been coaching with this information front and center. I mean, I'm reading about how to give a cue, the principles behind a cue. And let me be very clear for the listeners. This isn't like some rigid equation. It was principles, just like there's principles of program design. These were the principles behind effective cueing and instruction. How much information to give, how often to give it, what should actually the content be, feedback, you know, knowledge of results versus knowledge of performance, so on and so forth. And I'm like, how is it? that this is not common knowledge within the entire movement profession. And simply, it, it wasn't. And I think it's far better because we have a lot more people advocating, writing, and platforming this information. But still, to try to have a discussion on motor learning with the same ease that you would program design, we're nowhere near that. And so I identified it as a gap in myself and most certainly a gap in our industry. And so I started to read. And inevitably, I was speaking at a Perform Better. It was 2009. I think it was the very first year I spoke at Perform Better. And it was probably the only time I gave a non-coaching-related talk. And it was a talk on power and plyometrics. And I think I was in Long Beach. And so we get to the, the Q&A. I think it's on the Friday. And it's actually the only time I've ever heard this question. And I think, actually, it's a really good question, one of the better ones I've ever heard. And a participant stands up and says, if you were invited back next year, what topic would you speak on? And I, when it got to me, I said, I'm going to speak on the topic of the impact of cueing and communication on the way our athletes and clients learn to move. And I remember a number of people coming up to me afterwards saying, that's really, really interesting. And shortly thereafter, I found out about a gal named Gabrielle Wolf. And pretty soon I realized, as I went back to the Richard McGill text, Okay, Gabrielle Wolf. I knew that name was familiar. It's been referenced all over this textbook. And so inevitably, if you, if you study Gabrielle Wolf, you go back to 1998. And you find a 1998 paper that has two studies. One study is on this ski simulator of sorts to kind of the slalom left and right. And then the second study is on a balance machine. And you're reading about these cues around how pushing through the outside of the foot versus pushing through the outside of the wheels or keeping your feet parallel versus pieces of tape in front of your feet parallel. And she's calling these cues internal versus external. Internal ones about the body, external ones about the environment. And you get to the end, you're like, holy smokes. 
the, the difference, which was only a couple centimeters between trying to keep my feet parallel versus pieces of tape in front of my feet parallel or thinking about pushing through the outside edge of my foot versus the outside edge of this wheel for this ski simulator, this made a, a significant difference. People actually retained more and seemed to learn with a greater return on investment when they were investing their intention and attention in external cues rather than internal cues. And the rest is history now because she is the, uh, if JC at the time was the king of cues, then Gabrielle Wolf is the queen of cues because she, I've never seen a topic more thoroughly researched by a person in my life. And 170 plus papers were easily sitting at 96% of them showcase the benefit of an external focus of attention when it comes to learning movement. And, and I talked to her at length about writing a book uh, collaboratively because she had written the technical book, which is Attention to Motor Skill Learning, published by Human Kinetics in 2007, I believe. But I knew that in reading that myself, I enjoyed it. It was not going to be the conventional textbook for the volunteer coach or the up-and-coming coach who wanted to know how to apply these principles. And so what I did, this was in 2010, and I'll wrap up here. In 2009, 2010, I think it was 2010, I invited Gabrielle Wolf to come and speak at the Arizona NSCA State Clinic. Now, Gabby Wolf, I asked her this, had never spoken at a strength conditioning event in her life prior to this. And so I invited her in, and Robbie, people were blown away. And as you would expect, the questions around, well, oh, what about this instance for internal cueing or that instance for internal cueing? She spoke with such eloquence and such power and literally dismantled all the concerns, expressing what I now believe today, that an external focus while one moves is, is a principle of motor learning and a principle of motor control. And at least that's what the evidence seems to show. And that, that just cast skated from Gabrielle Wolf. I learned about Jared Porter, invited him out to the NSCA, and I just tried to give a platform to some of these individuals. Now, they've gone off and, and done amazing things, and it's, it's you know far from me to say that I was the reason, but I played at least a part with this, and then inevitably the Anthony Renna Strength Conditioning Podcast, when I talked about Strength Coach Podcast, in trying to give this information a platform. And fast forward, 2016, finished the PhD, on the topic of, of cueing, attentional focus, and sprinting, and still the book has not been written. And I say, okay, I've put in my time academically. I've put in my time from a curiosity perspective, and I've put in my time from a coaching perspective. I'm going to have a go at writing, writing this book, The Language of Coaching. Before we get into uh, to the book, Nick, and, and you know, how you laid it out and why you laid it out the way you did and the whole writing process, just want to give you the platform here to to address you know external versus internal cues. I know you touched yes. on this slightly with Eric on on his podcast when you two had a conversation, and it was funny because Eric actually had mentioned Stu McGill because that's actually the example I always give too of when there's like a misinterpretation in that you know Eric said oh people thought all Stu did all day long was just break pig spines in the lab because I I interviewed Stu I've interviewed Stu a few times now but yeah. the very very first time I interviewed him I said Stu do you know people think all you do is bring people into the clinic and brace them and he was like oh for God's sake like is it like he was just like like he's like the plank is like about like ten percent of what I do you know it's like when people think all Grey Cook ever done was this seven screen FMS and that's all he's ever 
ever done in his life. Like yeah. it's like such a small piece of the puzzle. So similar to yourself, I think people they all started to think of, oh, Nick Winkleman is the external cue guy, and he thinks internal cues never need to be used, and he's he's completely against them. So just give you the platform here to to address your thoughts and to kind of clear up that confusion. Yeah, yeah. Well. I'll say, if I'm defined by the work I do in queuing and communication, Robbie, I am completely okay with that. I can sleep nicely at night because that's how big of a domain I think it is. So I'll start with that. But you're right. And I think that perception of, of my narrative probably was and still is to a large degree correct. And that when I wrote my first presentation on the topic called What We Say Matters, I was presenting the research. As it, as it stated, and I was reflecting that research on my own experience. And that, that was the unique thing. It wasn't like I was just theoretically reading about this stuff and taking it at face value. When I first learned about internal external cueing, I said, well, there must be some application of internal cues. There has to be, because that was the primary type of cue I used at the time. And so people need to understand that. It, it wasn't like, I was just theoretically reading this. No, I actually disagreed with, with, with many of the, the pieces initially until I started reading more and running my coaching through the filter of the evidence and then using that filter to nudge my coaching and then my eyes were open. It's kind of like they say, you don't know your back hurts until it feels good. Oftentimes in the back pain area, it was that kind of, I didn't know how good my coaching could be until it got better. And I started to see material impact that didn't come from me changing my drills or adding more volume or trying the newest flavor of periodization, but simply saying less, but getting more out of what I said. And that came through the lens of internal external. So very much so I was on a mission. And I felt also that so often, and this is in the evidence and experience, people were using internal language in such a dominant form that if I had to swing the pendulum a little bit more to the other side to make the point, I still was going to end up doing far more good than not. And so that probably was a, a low-level signal behind some of the work I was doing. But let's bring it fast forward now to where I am today. And so when we look at queuing, to frame this up, queuing is the last thing. Let's be very clear. A queue is the last thing we say to a person before they move. Now the cue can come from us, but let me be very clear, the cue can also come from the athlete. So many of my best cues come from asking the athlete a question. So Robbie, if I was working with you on a vertical jump, and I said to you, listen Robbie, I need more power. I need you to be much more aggressive off the ground. What do you think you can think about to facilitate that? So if I was to ask you that question, and let's, let's say something like, well, I'm gonna imagine that the ground is hot and I gotta get off it as quickly as possible. And let's say that aligned with the biomechanics I was trying to promote. Maybe I was looking for more of a quick type hopping type action. And I say, okay, perfect. So get off the ground like it's on fire. And so I just want to make that point because oftentimes people hear the word cue and they assume it has to come from the coach. No. In fact, some of the best cues come from the athlete. The key take home is a cue is the last thing that the athlete hears or thinks about before they move. And thus, it's the thing they focus on while they move. So let's just be very crystal clear that that is the categorically the communication strategy that we're referring to when it comes to teaching movement right now. And so within that cue, the content of the cue lives on a, 
a continuum is the way I phrase it. And the way to think about this continuum is almost like the zoom lens on a camera. And so if I zoom all the way in to a movement, I can provide a cue at the level of the joint. So flex it, extend it, rotate it, or the action of a muscle. Shorten it, lengthen it, tighten it, brace it, so on and so forth. And so this zoomed in cue, which I'm sure listeners can reflect on and most certainly use, it's the biomechanical language that we all learn in school, I call those cues narrow internal cues because they're, they're zoomed all the way in. And I got the term narrow. It's a conventional narrow and broad are conventionally used in attention research. And so I just applied it to this context, a narrow internal cue. But then we can say, well, I also can control at the level of the limb. And so we can zoom out one level and say, instead of talking about the elbow joint, I can talk about the arm. Or instead of talking about the knee joint, I can talk about the leg. And so in the context of sprinting, if I say rapidly extend your hips, that's a narrow internal cue. If I say drive your leg back quickly, that's a broad internal cue. Then we keep going and we say, okay, well, what about connecting the body to the environment? And in my book, I talk about that as a hybrid cue. So if I say drive your leg back into the ground, or I say punch your arm through the ceiling, or I might give a visual analogy, drive your knee forward as if to shatter a pane of glass. The key thing about a hybrid cue is it's kind of like an internal plus an external. It gives you the body reference, but then it connects it to an environmental feature. So that's why we call it a hybrid. The where are we at? fourth cue is what we call now we're outside of the body. We, we, we've left the, uh, the dermis, we've left the skin, and now we are in a close external cue. And so sticking with our sprinting example, it might be instead of referencing the leg at all, explode off the ground or drive the ground back or blast off the line if we're talking about a three-point start, for example. And so it's called a close external cue because I'm referencing an environmental feature, the ground in this case, relevant to the movement, sprinting, that is close to my body. Finally, then, I can zoom all the way out kind of in, you know, for, for infinite, if I wanted to, into what we call a far external cue. And so in the case, again, of sprinting, let's say I have a, a finish line at 10 meters, I'm doing 10 meter sprints, I might say, explode towards the gates or explore, explode towards the finish or drive past the cones. And so now in the mind's eye, rather than just putting my energy into the ground beneath me, I'm putting energy into the ground in service of getting somewhere really far in front of me. And just to give you a slightly different sport example, in tennis or golf or baseball, you might guess a close external cue is referencing the racket, right? The club or the bat or the hurley in the case of hurling here or the contact with the ball. Whereas a far external cue would be the trajectory or endpoint. Uh, equally, if we're talking about rugby and kicking, focusing on contact with the ball, close external cue, focusing on arc trajectory endpoint, far external cue. And so what we have here is this beautiful zoom lens that can zoom into the micro unit, one part of a movement, all the way to the macro, the impact on the environment right around me, close external cue, or the ultimate outcome of the movement itself, a far external cue. And so when we look across that domain, I'll be, I'll be clear in saying the research has not always made all of those delineations. 
typically the research looks at internal versus external and doesn't always qualify narrow internal versus broad internal. There's one paper that has done it, but since then, sometimes it's broad, sometimes it's narrow, but that's not the language we in the literature. It's just internal versus external. And so if we take categorically all that internal stuff and categorically all that external stuff and we throw it in to this, this research machine that looks at balance, jumping, change of direction, sprinting, novices, expert, young, old, those with disabilities versus those who are able-bodied, right? Physical versus mental. And you jive all that together and spit out an outcome, an effect size. Is the, the odds favorable in one direction versus another? Is it a mixed bag or does it depend on context? And what we see is there is going to be well over 96% of those papers in agreement that external cues are going to not only typically work better in the moment, but here's the important piece. When we bring people back a few days later, a week later, and even some of the longitudinal studies on plyometrics, we see that there is a benefit for an external focus of attention or promoting an external focus of attention with your language and your cues. And so for a long time, to get back to your original nuanced point there, Robbie, that was the narrative I was sharing. And it's an accurate narrative. I am not misleading anybody with that, both benchmarked against my experience and a mountain of evidence. However, I recognize that not all the research has been done. In fact, it can never all be done for every context and every movement and every type of case. But when you have that much evidence in hand, it, it, is, it is the burden of the naysayers, the promoters of the internal cues to provide an equivalent mountain of evidence that is as nuanced and as clear. And that has yet to take form. However, I do believe we're going to start to see that it's, it's less black and white of internal versus external. I think there are certain internal cues that are better than others, just as there's certain external cues that are better than others. And could we feasibly have a, a situation where an internal cue is better than an external cue? For sure, especially if the external cue is directed at the wrong thing. And so all these cases are possible, but we can't get away from the core principle that's almost like the betting odds in Vegas, okay? If you bet on an external cue or an analogy, you are going to win more often than not, especially once you know the anatomy of creating effective external cues and analogies. The final thing, two final things here. One, if your internal cue doesn't work, if extending the hips, driving the leg back, flexing the elbow, if these cues don't work, Robbie, you have hit cueing bedrock. Where do you go from there? If all I have is internal cues, of flexion, extension, and rotation, and those don't work, those don't jive, what do I do? That's the first thing I'll say, okay? So external cues and analogies provide an infinite way to create phrases, that create pictures, that drive outcomes, intentions, and emotions, and feelings to achieving a given outcome. And you can do it in highly nuanced ways, which we can get into. The other point is this, and this is where my position has evolved. I believe that there is a place for internal language. I believe it is critical. You cannot coach people and not reference their body. You have to reference their body. So what I'm promoting in the language of coaching is not that we get rid of internal language. No, that we simply 
repurpose it. It has a different job than what we thought. And the job of internal language is to describe the movement, to give the athlete and the coach an indication of what to do. It, by its very nature, is describing the biomechanics, one step, one muscle, one joint at a time. And for that reason alone, it is important to elevate the knowledge and the familiarity to the degree that is required of the athlete with the movements and skills that they are performing. However, knowledge of a movement or knowledge about a movement is not the same as knowing how to do it. So internal language is used to describe a movement. External language and analogies are used to coach it. Internal language gives me the step-by-step -step detail of what is happening. External language gives the attentional system and specifically our intent the right language to leverage to achieve an outcome. External is outcome-oriented. The body can achieve that outcome. It's a goal. It's the address in the GPS. The internal language, well, that's the left turn at the next street, right turn up ahead, go around the block, destination on the left. Our brains cannot process those 20 steps when trying to swing a baseball bat in a half of a second. And we cannot confuse upgrading our athletes' knowledge of their movement with their ability to perform it. And so thus, internal external language, they both live on, so to speak, the communication or coaching communication block, but they live in different houses. As long as the last thing we say is an external or analogy, I believe we are going to help that athlete win, learn, and develop far more often than not. Just one question that came into my mind was hypertrophy, Nick. Um, now, like, I suppose maybe for this question, if, if we were to take a high-level bodybuilder, I know some have made the case for internal cumin with a bodybuilder because they're so... Okay. They're, they're so intrinsically um, wired to their body, you know, mm. obviously they're, they're all about isolation and, you know, the mind-muscle connection and whatnot. So the actual question in my mind, and this is kind of going off Exos' training methodology, you know, the fact that in that sort of tertiary block in terms of the strength work is a lot of hypertrophy work. So from a performance aspect in terms of, you know, um, speed in terms of plyos speed power and even you know actual heavy strength work the case for external cueing does does seem to be pretty strong in regards to it versus internal cues but let's say later on that session if you were doing more of that auxiliary hypertrophy work would that be a case of where you may switch into some internal cues so i address this because it's a very important question in my book and actually i was a part of I was the last author on a very long list of authors on a paper that Brad Schoenfeld in a study Brad Schoenfeld put together that addressed that exact question. Mm -hmm. And so for me, we've got to go right back to the first principles around the, the science of attentional focus and what we know about internal and external cues and what they do, let's say, be behind the performance of the outcome, what is actually going on beneath that at a neuromuscular level. And so what we know is this, yes, internal cues, internal cues are consistently connected to higher EMG, so higher muscular activation. 
Now, I think anyone listening who knows about coordination, that's not always a good thing. If I'm actually trying to improve the coordination of my movement, we see strategic shifts and changes in lowering of EMG because I can get more for less. Fantastic. So we know that immediately external cues are oftentimes seen as promoting a more automatic, self-organized form of movement. And in the world of coordination and skill learning, that's a really good thing. But to your point, there may be certain instances where I want more muscle activation. I'm trying to fatigue more motor units, and thus that might be advantageous, as you said, for a bodybuilder or a, a hypertrophic phase. And so let's, let's dig into that. Well, the first thing we have to dig into, and funny enough, the earlier version of me that was really interested in periodization and program design, I wrote a paper for the UKSCA on functional versus non-functional hypertrophy. And so we know that there's kind of those two major routes to uh, hypertrophy. And, and by the way, a plug for Brad Schoenfeld, his second edition of his book, textbook on hypertrophy just came out. And within that, you'll, you'll see that obviously we can tackle hypertrophy through tension in the tissue. And that's obviously lifting heavier weights. That tends to be a little bit of the slower route but promotes functional hypertrophy, hypertrophy of the, the motor units that contribute to force and power. Or I can take the fatiguing or metabolic route where I'm using higher volume, what we might see suggested in Flex Magazine. And I was a big consumer of Flex Magazine when, when I was younger. And so we see these two different routes. And so what I would argue is this, insofar as fatigue and using that metabolic pathway as a way to promote downstream changes in hypertrophy, especially if I'm doing isolated work, 100%. Squeeze your bicep, right? Peak your triceps, squeeze your glute, squeeze your quad on the leg extension. These can be effective and correct applications of internal cues because you're saying, I want increase in EMG, I want increase in fatigue, and that is going to cause the downstream hypertrophy signaling I want. Beautiful. You're taking the science and you're applying it correctly, and you know why you are using internal cues. And so when we look at that, though, alternatively on the tension front, well, what do we know about external cues? Do they allow me to get more repetitions to fatigue from a bench press and a squat? Well, studies would suggest yes, if I focus on the bar versus the pec. Am I going to produce more force and power in my bench press, in my squat, even in my bicep curl? Uh, yes. Does it take longer to fatigue under an external cue as measured both isometrically and dynamically? Yes. So based on philosophically on how you're trying to signal downstream hypertrophy, right, Robbie, you can make an argument for both. I feel though your, your isolated single muscle to fatigue type protocols, yes, those probably stand out as being benefited by an internal cue. And that's exactly, back to my original point, what Brad Schoenfeld found in his study. He found that internal cues for upper body resulted in greater muscular hypertrophy than external cues, but no difference for the lower body. So it would seem, you know, back to, to Poliquin and the fact that the upper body needs possibly more diversity of, of exposure and training types to cause consistent gains, that notably in the upper body for single muscle type movements, internal cues could be advantageous for promoting hypertrophy. But we simply have to be very cognizant 
of weighing up that language on the mind with the movement we're trying to promote. The second you say force, power, speed, coordination, movement, quality, and efficiency of mind-body connection, then I'm immediately handing you a book on external cues. Stuff. So just wrapping up here, Nick, talk to us about the book and what readers can expect, why the layout is the way it is in it, and also touch on the virtual book club that you also started along with the book. Yeah, for sure. So the, the book is the tale of two stories. So the, the one story in the book from beginning to end is my story. And so there's three parts in the book. Part one is called Learn. It has three chapters. Part two is called Coach. It has three chapters. And part three is called Q. It has four chapters. And ahead of each of those parts, I share my journey. So very much so, Robbie, in the spirit of the questions you've asked today, I go through my thinking in a kind of a temporal fashion. What was I thinking at the time? What questions was I asking? Where was I being challenged? And how did I sequentially overcome those challenges? Because I want everyone to know who reads the book that this is a journey we are on as coaches and developing this invisible feature of communication. And I wanted to lead with empathy that I understand the challenge in front of you if you want to commit to being a better coach. Here's my story. At the same time, then, I tell the story of the science. I tell the story of the information that is going to be critical to developing the habit of cueing and communication. So chapter one focuses on learning. What does it even mean to learn something? What needs to be true to learn something? And I put this through the practical models that I use to dissociate between features of the body that are trainable through your program design, mobility, stability, strength, and power, and the pieces that are coachable, i.e. coordination, pattern of movement, and subject to immediate change by language. So that's chapter number one. We then get into attention and memory for chapters two and three. Attention is the gateway to learning. If I don't pay attention to it, I cannot learn from it. So as coaches, we need to learn how to capture, keep, and direct it. But once I put my mental spotlight of attention on something, I open up the proverbial door of the mind and I invite it in. And ultimately, the ability to express a movement, put differently, is the ability to express the memory of a movement. And so to talk about learning, we need to look at the home of learning. And that's our memory system. And within each of those chapters, attention and memory, it's very easy to have that be dry and boring. And while I don't shy away from the science and the detail, I wrap it in storytelling. You don't go very deep into a topic without then being brought to the shallows and have it summarized through analogy or story. Because the last thing I was looking to do was create another dusty textbook with no disrespect to them because I love them. This had to be something accessible to all. Once you get through part one on learn, you understand the core bedrock principles of learning. And theoretically, you have all the information you need to then predict what is going to be said in the subsequent chapters. But we don't want to bank on that. And that's why we go to part two, coach. And that is broken into three sections. Section one, finding focus. That is the science of how what we focus on impacts how we move. If you would, that's the tribute 
to Gabrielle Wolf and other researchers uh, in and around the attentional focus area. And we tell the story of attentional focus. We then get into chapter five now. We're talking about cueing and how to build our cues. You only get to the start line by understanding the external cues are valuable. To run that race, you need to know the anatomy of how to build effective cues that fit the movement and the individual performing it. And so that's where we get into my 3D model. We then get into chapter six, that's on analogies. And how do we create visuals that actually drive the mind and the body to move better in an intuitive, simple way? How do we tap into the inner Neo and be able to bring the matrix to the mind and allow the body to move as if. And then finally, part three, you've had all the information you need. You've built the fishing pole, so to speak. We get into seven, chapter seven. That's the roadmap, Robbie. Uh, you and I have both read a lot of books and many people listening are consuming a lot of books. And oftentimes we've had that experience where we've read something, it's impactful, it's important, but we get back to our daily life. And because we don't have a process to bring it into our habits, to upgrade our behaviors with that information, it gets dissolved. It dissipates into the ether. And for me, I was like, no way. And so I committed myself to writing a chapter in the spirit of James Clear, Atomic Habits, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. And I decoded basically, how would I suggest people slowly but surely upgrade the way that they coach using these strategies? So an entire chapter is dedicated to you as the reader in doing that. And then finally, I put it this way, chapters 8, 9, and 10, called Strong Cueing, Powerful Cueing, and Fast Cueing, respectively. These cover 27 movements. I open up my language locker, applying the principles of the 3D cueing model and the analogy model, and I share what amounts to hundreds of cues, precisely allocated to different phases of movement and brought forth, and this is credit to human kinetics, who brought my ideas to life in a visual form that I've rarely seen in other books. And so long-winded, but for your listeners, I want them to make sure they understand exactly what they'd be getting themselves into. It is a journey. It is a story, but it's not my story. I might be the first one telling it in this way. I believe it's a story that needs to be told again and again and again, because how we communicate and how we coach is as important as what we coach. And to your point, because I want people to get the most out of this experience, I have started a global book club. We kicked it off last night. It was recorded. It will go on my YouTube channel on the language of coaching, but we have three more of these and we're going kind of chapter by chapter with presentations, anecdotes, readings, and plenty of time for questions. And so on all my social media channels, people can get the, the registration link. There's a few spots left still. Phenomenal. That's a phenomenal service. So, uh, as one coach, you know, Nick, I truly appreciate all the work you've done and everything you've done for the profession. Is there anything I didn't ask that you wished I did ask? No, I, I think as always, you're, you're very eloquent with your questions, Robbie, and I, as always, am, am more long-winded than I should be. And so I'm still learning to improve there. But no, I appreciate your time and the platform you give to so many for us to, to share information to make others better. Just just to let you know, you're, you're a podcast host dream. Like we love when people just like, like just take off. It makes our job much easier. Well, I personally do anyway. It was funny as, as, as you were, like as you were answering my questions, I, that thought came to my mind. It was like so easy to interview Nick. And then the first person that came into my head was Dan Faf because I think Dan is so hard to interview because he's so, <laughs> he's so zen Buddha with his answers. And he kind of like has finished answering your question by the time you're ready. And you're like, oh, right, um, my next question. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, for, for, for sure, for sure. I've, uh, rightly or wrongly, I've gotten myself into the, into the storytelling mode, but I think it, it adds some stickiness to it at times. My very, very last question. How is your son getting on with learning how to cycle? Has he nailed it? He has nailed it. He has nailed it. He is now uh, bombing down hills. We've busted cheeks and knees because he's becoming, he, well, he, he fancies himself a, a BMX rider already. And he, he actually has fallen down so many times, Robbie, that his pedal on the right side broke in half. That's how many times the spike is banged down. But again, you know, we've all seen those, those infographics. I think there's a great one out there of the, of the skateboarder. And it kind of has all the stills of him falling again and again and again. But inevitably, that's what life is about. So he's nailed it. Awesome stuff. Nick, everything um, of yours will be put into the show notes. So websites um, where people can find the book, the YouTube channel and whatnot. But just for the listeners real quickly, just give them other areas where they can reach out to you. So maybe your website again, social media, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So I'm having a go at this whole website thing. So it's www.thelanguageofcoaching.com. I can be reached at info at thelanguageofcoaching.com and then at Nick Winkleman on all the social media channels to, to get the fresh information. Awesome. Okay. So for everyone, I really hope you enjoyed the conversation with Nick today as much as I did. And until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.